Welcome to the American Citizens Abroad podcast. I'm Michelle, and today I'm chatting with the author, Keith Van Sickle, who splits his time between Provence and California. Welcome, Keith. Thanks for chatting with us today. Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. You and your wife split your time, as I mentioned, between California and Provence. How did you decide on Provence? And why did you choose to split your time between the two countries? My wife, Al, and I have been spending about a third of our time in Provence and about two-thirds in California for about 15 years. But the story actually goes back to Switzerland. 30 years ago, I was asked to take an assignment in Switzerland by my company as an expat. And my wife found a job there, which was great because it was a small town in Switzerland. And we lived there for five years and just had an incredible time. Yes, it was hard at first. Yes, there were challenges. But we enjoyed it a lot. We made a lot of good friends. We traveled all over Europe. It was kind of like colors were brighter over there than in our sort of normal life back in California. And when our expat assignment ended after those five years, we came back to California, which was great. But we thought, wow, that would be fun to do again. And so we would periodically look for an expat gig and search around and ask questions. But no luck because expat assignments are rare and special. And we had been lucky to have just one. So that's fine. We kept our life in California with our friends and family and did our jobs. But we always had this idea that, gosh, that would be fun to do again. So finally, we said, well, let's see if we can create kind of a a part-time expat assignment and do it ourselves and live and work over there, but do it in a way that doesn't require visas and work permits and all that sort of thing. So we both became consultants. So I quit my regular job and became a consultant because that allows you to have more flexibility in your work hours. You can work a lot sometimes and less other times. So we kind of piled up our work as much as we could in the California time, I would say, and less when we were abroad. And we said, great, let's spend a few months in Europe somewhere. And we would have loved to have gone back to Switzerland, but but we no longer had Swiss salaries. And Switzerland is really expensive when you don't have a Swiss salary. So we thought about France. We'd always liked France, and we especially liked Provence. So we decided, let's try that. About 15 years ago, we did. It worked well, and we went back the next year, and we've been back most every year since then, not, not during COVID, of course. We tried different parts of Provence because it's a big area, but finally about 10 years ago settled on a town called San Remi de Provence where we go back every year. And it's kind of interesting having this life in two places because we really enjoy what each has to offer because they're quite different. In California, we live in the so-called Silicon Valley, which is this very dynamic place. Lots of people from all over the world doing really exciting things. My career was in Silicon Valley. And so we, we love that dynamism. But we also enjoy, by contrast, the pace and the beauty of Provence, which is quite different. And it's it, it's hard to get the dynamism in Provence because of the type of place it is. And it's hard to get the the pace and beauty here in Silicon Valley, which is where I am right now. So this is a way to have both in our lives. And we appreciate both of them. And could you speak a bit about the French short-stay visas and how they work? Yes. As you and your listeners may know, there's something in Europe called the Schengen Zone, which is where a bunch of European countries got together and have sort of a common external border for entry and exit. So once you enter into 
one of the Schengen countries and go through passport control and all that, you can then travel freely from one to the other Schengen countries without any border control. As Americans, we have the right, without any special visas or anything, to be in the Schengen zone for a total of 90 out of any 180-day period, sort of a moving window. So if you want to stay, for example, for consecutive days, you can stay for 90 days and you have to be gone at least 90 days before you can come back. And so initially we used to do the 90-day period. So we would go for three months and then come back to California. We would have liked to stay longer. And France does have a longer visa program. And I say longer, that's more than 90 days, but less than a year, because more than a year, then you're kind of getting into the permanent resident kind of program. But you can get a visa for different periods of less than a year. However, like many things dealing with French bureaucracy, it was a disaster to try to get one. We had friends that went through the process. It was confusing. It was inconsistent. It was a big problem. So we never tried it until about five years ago, the French outsourced this process to another company, which made it much more structured, much more clear, much more easy. And so now we've been getting visas for between four and seven months a year by going through this process, which allows us, once we're in France, then to travel within the Schengen zone so we can go and see our friends in Switzerland. It's actually worked very well. There's some paperwork you have to do. It costs about $100. And you have to, at one point, go into one of the offices of this outsourced company, which are around the country. So it may be easy or hard, depending on whether one is close to you. Ours is only about an hour away. It's a great program, which has allowed us to stay longer. And it's pretty easy to get, especially once we've done it once. I think the reapproval process is easier. And have you experienced any challenges as an American while living in Provence? You know, I'd say... There are challenges, first, being a foreigner in any country where you don't really understand the customs, you don't speak the language, and you can get in trouble that way. I remember the time that I accidentally, kind of a long story, but I accidentally got into somebody else's car in a parking lot, and they knocked on the window and told me I was in their car and I should get out, and I didn't really speak much French at the time, so I thought they were saying something else, and I sort of got into an argument with them before I finally realized she was saying, sure, you're in my car. <laughs> and, oh, what a, I was just so embarrassing because I, I didn't understand what she was saying. Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> or when I, I was doing something down in the, the top of our house, which had a low roof, which I didn't realize. I got something, I stood up, I cut badly the top of my head, which bled, you know, like head wounds do. It wasn't terrible, but I looked like I was in a horror movie, blood all over and the little doctor office in our village was closed that day. It was like a Sunday or something. And I I didn't know what to do. So I just put ice and pressure and, and went the next day when it was closed. And the doctor's like, why didn't you contact me? Because there's a number on the door. That's how it works. When I'm closed, and this happens in France, so the doctor's closed in the villages or pharmacies closed because there are certain days all the pharmacies closed. But there's always one open. And there's a note. Go to the office. This is what you do when I'm closed. You contact this guy in the next village. You go to this pharmacy down the road. And I didn't know that. So she's like, what an idiot. You know, I can't do stitches now. It's too late. So those are customs that, yeah, I made mistakes. Now, as an American, to your question, are there any specifics to American? You know, it's actually been a little bit different because 
I now speak French. And so as an American in France who speaks French, I and my wife, we're a little exotic. So it makes us kind of curiosities. People want to know why we live there and what do we think about France versus America. And I remember a really sweet time. We were we were walking our dog, speaking English to each other. And we passed this old guy and he heard us and he said, oh, are you British? Pursuing French. We said, no, no, we're American. And he stopped and he thanked us for American support of France in World War II and D-Day and all the American sacrifices to free France from the Nazis. And it was just so sweet. It was just really oh. nice. What has surprised you most about life in Provence? You know how friendly people have been. Certainly there's a reputation of the French being kind of cold and aloof and not like the Americans. And there's actually a reputation within France that the people of Provence, there's an expression, they welcome you with open arms, but they never close those arms behind you in a hug. Meaning they kind of welcome you superficially, but they never really let you in. We have not experienced that at all. We have wonderful friends in Provence, wonderful French friends, wonderful friends who their families have lived there for generations. So that has been a pleasant surprise. We also, I would say the other thing that surprised us is just, gosh, how many, how many holidays there are or semi-holidays or things are just closed a lot. Oh, we're having a festival tomorrow. So everything's closed today. There are bulls running in the street. Oh, we're closed today. There's a holiday and there's going to be a holiday and there's on a Thursday. So we're also closed on Friday and the middle of the day, things are closed. You really have to plan when you live there, not as a tourist so much, but you have to do your shopping. You have to get things done in town. And so we've had to learn about how to work around all the closed times. What is the best kept secret of Provence that one wouldn't find in a tourist blog or a book? I'll give you... I'm not sure there's any of these are super secret, but they're they're not all well known. And I'll I'll give you to them an order of more and more secret. Roman Provence, Catholic Provence, and Jewish Provence. So the Roman Empire used to encompass France, you know, when Julius Caesar conquered Gaul back in the day. And the empire was especially well anchored in what they called the Provincial Romana, which from which the name Provence comes. So there are all sorts of fantastic Roman sites and monuments that you can see in Provence. I think I saw a list once of the 10 best Roman sites in France and eight of them were in Provence. So there are these big arenas that are still used, musical events or sporting events in these 20,000 seat arenas, which are 2000 years old and still used. There's the aqueduct, which is as tall as the Statue of Liberty, the most perfect Roman temple anywhere. So there's these beautiful Roman sites everywhere that you can see. Those are really great. Catholic Provence, probably a little less known. People probably know that there's a papal palace in Avignon, but they may not know the story behind it. So the papacy for about a century was based not in Rome and the Vatican, but it was in Avignon. There were seven consecutive popes which lived in Avignon. So you can see the papal palace, which is also kind of a papal fortress because back in the day things weren't always secure. You can go to Chateauneuf de Pop, which is one of the world's great wine regions because that was where the pope had his summer palace. 
The Chateau de Papa means the new chateau of the Pope, and popes need good wine to drink, so they planted vineyards, and today it's one of the great wine areas of France. So there's all this Catholic history, and kind of interesting, too, that the story of how the popes got there is because Pope and the King of France got into a real dispute one time, because they both had a lot of power, and they had territories which adjoined, and the, the Pope decided to get mad and excommunicate the king of France, which was a really bad idea because before too long, the Pope was dead and because of the king of France. And all the cardinals thought, you know, we don't want to get dead. So we'll elect the next Pope as this guy who is the king of France's best friend. There were seven consecutive French popes. What a surprise. Before finally they kind of got out of town and went back to Rome. And not surprisingly, there have been no French popes ever since. Now, Jewish Provence, I would say it's probably the least well-known. France actually today has the third largest Jewish population in the world. A lot of people don't know that after Israel and the United States. And today it is centered around Paris, like much of things in France, they're centered around Paris. For centuries, the center of Jewish life in France was Provence. And it's because of those popes. So Avignon was papal territory and there's a region adjoining Avignon, and they, they together constituted the French Papal States. The French, or the Pope owned this. And during a period where persecution of Jews was especially strong in Europe and especially strong in France, and the Kingdom of France, and Jews were chased out of place after place, the Pope welcomed them. And so a lot of Jewish people came to Provence, to this area of the French Papal State and lived under the Pope's protection. They were known as the Juifs de Pop, the Pope's Jews. They were able to live reasonably well. I mean, they were still second, third, fourth class citizens, but much better than elsewhere in France where their lives were in danger. And so there are these wonderful Jewish sites that you can visit in Provence today. The oldest synagogue in France, for example, in Carpentras, you can visit, it's quite beautiful. And other sites, which are pretty interesting. Those are three I'm not sure they're secrets, but the further you go, I think the Jewish Provence is probably the most secret of those. Most people don't know that. Splitting your time between California and Provence, do you experience any culture shock when you arrive in California or when you arrive in Provence? Well, it's certainly not the same culture shock we experienced moving to and returning from Switzerland. because That was such a long period and we lived full time in Switzerland. So it's not like that, but it's still a little jarring going back and forth. The logistics are complicated, especially because we take our dog. So taking a dog back and forth is stressful because we want to make sure she's okay. Bringing stuff and what do we bring and what do we leave behind and that sort of thing. And it's hard to say goodbye because we say goodbye to our friends, especially our French friends who we see less because we spend less time there. That's hard. But at the same time, I have to say, when you're only in a place for a while and then you know you're going to be gone again, you make more of an effort to see your friends. Because if you live in a place and you live there all the time, you say, oh, we really should get together with the Millers. But you don't because you can. So you don't make a point. It's like, oh, we'll see them at Christmas or we'll see them at the ball game or we'll see them somewhere. But you don't make a special effort. But if you don't oh, know you're only going to be there for four months or eight months, you say, we really got to make sure we see the Millers. And so we actually somehow it makes us see our friends more. So that's kind of nice. I would also say that while we miss things. You know, we miss things about California when we're in France. We miss things about France when we're in California. 
we try to think less about what we miss and focus more on what we have because each place has special things that we don't have in the other. And so we really, we look forward to the things we're going to have in France when we go there. We look forward to the things we're going to have in California when we go there. So it's a little bit of an attitude to, to focus on the positive. Is there anything about life in Provence that would surprise Americans who haven't lived there or only know about what they've read or seen in movies or TV about the region? You know, movies and TVs and a, a good year with Russell Crowe. There's you know, sun-dappled vineyards and lavender and, you know, all that sort of thing, which, by the way, is true. There's all that stuff. I think the thing that is most surprising, it's such uh, large parts of it, not the Côte d'Azur, for example, large parts of it are very rural. It's an agricultural area. It's one of the breadbaskets of France. And maybe the surprising thing and the nice thing is how well they keep their rural traditions, especially those that involve animals, because there are lots of farm animals around. And you see it in the in some of the festivals. You see it just out in the countryside. So I remember once Val and I were off a bike ride. We stopped and turned out, here's a shepherd standing there with a few thousand sheep roaming around. And he came over to have a chat, because I think when you're up in the mountains all the time, it's kind of boring. And we had this long chat with this shepherd who'd probably been doing this for 50 years and it was just fascinating you know he told us about a sheep told about a sheepdog he told us how he moves around during the year i don't i don't get that in silicon valley that was pretty cool and i don't hear about that and there are also these these festivals so there's something called the transhumance and the transhumance is where in the old days the shepherds would march their flocks up to the mountains where it was higher and cooler in the summertime because down in the flatland could be really hot. And these marches would take them through village after village, maybe hundreds of miles. And so there's these traditions of these sheep marching through towns at certain times of the year. Well, they take trucks today, because gosh, trucks are much easier, but they still have a festival where they march once a year, thousands of sheep through towns, like the town where we live, with some music and shepherds and horses and goats. And it's just, it's like this river of sheep going through towns because they want to remember their tradition. There's the festival Saint-Eloi, which is the patron saint of horses, where horses get all decorated with flowers in their manes and they kind of parade through town. There's bull sports because there are lots of bulls raised there. And there's a, a sport with, where they tie kind of doodads around the bull's horns and mm -hmm. foolish young men try to get the doodads off their horns. It's actually a sport that is in arenas and they have like a national championship and the whole bit, but it's it's kind of this crazy local sport where remarkably nobody ever gets hurt. It's very crazy and dangerous. And that, so there are things like that that are part of the village life and it's really fun. And I don't remember knowing about that before we moved to Provence. The other thing I'd say, which is, I'm not sure it's a surprise and it's not especially a Provence all thing, but it's something important for visitors to France to know, and that is that French pharmacies, if you're traveling there, French pharmacies are your friend. They are the first line of defense in the French medical system. They are everywhere. The French are hypochondriacs. They take more pills than anybody in Europe. It's impossible not to find a pharmacy. They're well-stocked. The pharmacists are well-trained, and if you have a problem on a vacation, not you know a broken bone or something that really requires medical attention, but something where you go, gosh, how do I find a doctor for my 
this rash, I cut myself, I have an upset stomach, I have cold or flu. You don't need to try to find a doctor. Go to a pharmacist, you explain what your problem is, and they'll give you what you need. And it's really a great, great part of the medical system that uh, is very helpful, especially for travelers. And who is the American expat community in Provence composed of? We certainly have students, though they're concentrated primarily in the big cities, so where they have universities. For example, Aix-en-Provence, which is a pretty big town and very well known, has three universities. There are like 25% of the city is made up of students. That's where you'll see expat students, for example, like uh, the famous actor Bradley Cooper was an expat student in Aix-en-Provence, which is why, if you've ever seen an interview, he speaks very good French. There are lots of retirees. There's an Anglo-American group, the Anglo-American club, I forget, for, especially for the English-speaking community. There are obviously other you know, non-English-speaking expats who live there, but we mostly see the English speakers. Though I would say we, we don't engage with that community, not because we don't like Americans or, or Brits or anything. We, we love Americans and Brits, but because when we were in Switzerland, we didn't speak French. And so we were in the French speaking part of Switzerland. And so we only engaged with the English speaking community, whether American or Swiss or foreign. And, and it was great. And we have wonderful friends around the world. And we go back and see our Swiss friends regularly in Switzerland. But we never really had the opportunity to get under the covers of Swiss society because we couldn't read the newspaper. We couldn't watch TV. We didn't know what was going on there. And so we decided if we're going to France, we want to have a different experience. We want to learn the language, which I learned in my 50s, which was really, really hard, but very satisfying. And we wanted to just have French friends. Again, not to demean our American British colleagues, but just wanted to have a different experience. For that reason, I don't really know much about the expat community other than it's there. We hear it in town sometimes. There are also, I'm sure, digital nomads, but I think they're in the bigger cities. We don't see them where we are. We're in a town of about 10,000. So I think you'll probably see them more in Paris or Aix-en-Provence or Marseille or places like that. So I know they, they're around, but we don't really see them where we are. Can you tell us what the best part of living abroad is for you and what is the most difficult? I would say the hardest part was learning the language. Your brain is not as adaptable at 50 as it is at 15, but it made an enormous difference because we can connect with people in a in a different way. And we can have conversations which wouldn't have otherwise. And it really, it opens your mind. That was hard, but also good. We haven't had to deal a lot with the bureaucracy. If we were there full-time, it would be really hard because the French bureaucracy is famously bad. We have friends living in the own, Americans who've been there three years, and they speak excellent French, but they still struggle with how do you get the bus pass? How do you deal with this medical stuff? How do you get the phone or the bank account? It's just, it's just awful. So moving to France, that's probably the biggest be aware. I think one of the problems we had in Switzerland, we actually don't have so much here is connectivity because it's really good now. When we moved to Switzerland, initially the World Wide Web actually didn't exist yet. There was no such thing as email and cell phones and we were far away. But now, connectivity is really good, especially when we were retired now, but when we were working, internet was pretty spotty. We had it in the houses we rented, but I remember one place 
that it would go out every time the wind blew and the wind blows a lot in Provence. We were always like, oh my God, I got to get this thing done for a client. And we'd kind of run around and try to find a, an internet hotspot. But now that's pretty much everywhere. In terms of what's great, our friends, more than anything, we, we wish we could you know, put them in our suitcases and bring them back with us when we come back here. The different pace of life. I sometimes say, you know, the Silicon Valley moves at the speed of the internet and and Provence moves at the pace of the seasons. It's just so nice to slow down and appreciate the small things of life. And the food and wine are obviously really pretty darn great. For those thinking about relocating to Provence or anywhere in France, what insider tips would you give them? Learn the language, at least some. You don't have to do what Val and I did, because you may choose, boy, that's not worth it. But to know the basics, to be able to get around town, to be polite, to be respectful. So at least some you need. You can't go in with nothing. If you have the choice, I mean, if you're an expat and your company says, we're moving you to X place, well, you don't have a choice. But if you do have a choice of where you're going to live, I would say really understand if that's a good place for you. We have some friends who are really smart. They visited a town a few times. They thought, boy, we think we want to buy a house here in this little town. But we're not sure because we've only been there during the good part of the year and it's really nice. So before they made their decision, they went and spent the month of January in that town because they figured the weather's going to stink. Everything's going to be closed. If we like it then, we're going to like it the rest of the year. So they, they really researched that and made sure that was the right place for them. I thought that was very smart. I think decide what sort of experience you want. Do you want a city? Do you want a suburb? Do you want something rural? Because those are very different. Do you want to socialize with other expats? Do you want to socialize with locals that will cause you to do certain things, both in preparation and when you're there? And I'd say, boy, be patient. (laughs) Don't expect perfection. It's not going to be the same. And really try hard not to be judgmental because you're going to find things that are different than they're like at home. And you'll think, well, that's stupid. Why do they do it that way? And it's easy to think that's stupid until if you look into things like, oh, well, it makes sense here because not everything is the same as at home. You need to not judge too fast, but be open-minded. I'd also say be comfortable with being stupid, especially at the start. I remember I felt stupid every day for the first several months at least when we moved to Switzerland, because we just didn't know how things were done. I remember Val coming home one day, she needed a pair of shoes, she went to the local shoe store, and she came back, and she didn't have the vocabulary, and she didn't know how it worked, and she wasn't able to buy a pair of shoes. How hard is that? And she's like, you know, I used to be competent. And you just have to try to laugh at it. Just say, well, that's it. You're going to be frustrated. Maybe try to turn it into a funny story, like the time I got in this lady's car and had a dispute. Oh, what an idiot. But you know, now it's a funny story. So you try to make lemons in the lemonade, I guess. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share? I expect to be surprised, both good and bad. There will be delights you didn't expect, and there will be things that will be disasters that you didn't expect, and just try to roll with the punches, especially at the beginning. But boy... It can be incredibly enriching. It really literally changed our lives to have that first expat assignment. And even now to have this experience in another country, which is a a regular part of our lives. It's just, it's so enriching. 
If you're thinking about it, but you're not sure, I would encourage you to go for it. Thanks for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. The American Citizens Abroad podcast is a monthly podcast that is published the second Tuesday of each month. It is edited and produced by me, Michelle, and is a product of American Citizens Abroad. You can find us on Twitter at ACA underscore podcast, on Facebook at American Citizens Abroad podcast, or you can email us at podcast at americansabroad.org. Remember, give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts so other Americans living abroad can find us. 